Good morning, or good afternoon, good evening, good whatever. It all depends on when you listen to Europe's new political economy. It's Jorge Tamames, as usual, and I'm happy to say we have a different episode today. So we usually bring academics, political scientists, sociologists, or economists to talk about European affairs in this podcast. But today we have a politician and policymaker. I am talking about Owen O'Brien, who is TD for Dublin Midwest and Sinn Féin's spokesperson for housing, planning, and local government. He is the author of several books, the latest of which is Home, Why Public Housing is the Answer. What I believe is his first book is on an entirely different topic, Youth Culture in the Basque Country, where... Incidentally, I'm actually recording the introduction to this episode right now. So, throughout the next hour, O'Brien and Aidan Regan will discuss a range of topics that include populism in Europe and Latin America, Sinn Féin's role in Irish politics following a surprisingly good performance in the 2020 elections, and the ways in which nationalism affects left parties and movements. Not to recommend our own podcast too much, but this is an episode that I find fascinating and I really enjoyed it. And no, I'm not trying to hype to make up for the fact that it has a rather abrupt ending because Aiden's computer crashed. That's just a fact of life in the age of Zoom meetings and calls. Um, in fact, I have even more spurious reasons. I liked it partly because I have just finished writing a book on the subject of left populism in Spain and the United States. And also because Ireland right now is one of the most interesting examples of this trend in Europe. In any event, thanks to Owen, who seemed to enjoy reading the book. And now, off we go to learn from an actual practitioner of the subject. Owen, thanks for, thanks for chatting with me today. Good, thanks for having me. So we might just start off uh, by talking about Sinn Féin and populism. Um, because most people or a lot of people listening into this podcast will be coming from various other European countries who may not be so familiar with the kind of Sinn Féin party, with the, with the kind of nationalist tradition in Ireland. So is Sinn Féin a populist party? So the, the straight answer is it depends on what you mean by populism. Uh, and there's a, a very lively, very interesting, but unfortunately sometimes very misinformed debate both in academic and in journalistic circles around Europe uh, around this term. Right? So you know, on the one hand have this media debate that has a very pejorative uh, use of the term populism which essentially suggests politicians who just say things to get votes uh, just to be popular. Obviously there, there's another body of, of, of literature, journalistic and academic, which is looking at the rise of authoritarian populist right-wing political parties and governments, whether it's Orban in in Hungary or Salvini in Italy or elsewhere, and obviously Trump in, in the US. And then there's another group of, of debates which are around, uh, is it possible to construct a progressive pluralist left populism, whether it's on the basis of Syriza uh, or Podemos or, or uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, for example, or Corbyn. So if, 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 if you're asking me, is Sinn Féin part of that third set of discussions? The answer is yes. Um, and I suppose that then means, what do we mean by the term populism? Uh, and as all of the kind of sympathetic commentators who are having this discussion will say is, populism isn't an ideology in the sense of socialism or, 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 or you know, liberalism. Uh, populism is a political strategy. It's a discursive strategy. It's a way of doing politics 
that tries to bring together what are disparate uh, uh, concerns in a population where people feel they're left behind by the status quo for economic or social or cultural reasons. Uh, and to coalesce those divergent interests and, and concerns into a single political subject for people in opposition to uh, centres of power, whether they're political or economic elites. So what I suppose the advocates of that progressive uh, left populism would say is, unlike the authoritarian right-wing populism that tries to articulate a sense of the people in opposition on the one hand to political and economic elites, but on the other hand to other outgroups like migrants and, for example, the lesbian and gay community, etc. Uh, populism is trying to articulate a plural progressive democratic project, which is left in its socioeconomic content. In many instances, it's nationalist in a progressive way uh, because it's set in the context of the nation state and the nation state progressively pulling against the neoliberal European uh, uh, architecture. Uh, but at the same time, it's employing that popular strategy of trying to articulate a movement of the people against the, the minority center interests of power as a mechanism for building a kind of hegemonic political project and ultimately taking state power. So I suppose the, yeah. the, the short answer to that long-winded ramble is yes, but it, only in the context of that third kind of debate that's ongoing within political and academic circles. I mean, I have kind of contested views on this myself in, in, in whether or not populism is a useful concept to capture what are clearly qualitatively very different politics. So, I mean, it seems to me that if we try to squeeze in <laughs> the, the Trump, Orban, Salvini, Sinn Féin, uh, you know, Podemos into one kind of concept, you, you, you really risk stretching it to become rather meaningless. So is there something, so you're saying that there is something qualitatively distinctive about a left populism, which really has nothing in common with those other variants of kind of right wing, or what has become in popular commentary uh, the, 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 the reference point for populism, which is right-wing nationalist movements. What I'm saying is slightly different, right? What I'm saying is, is that populism is a political, organizational, discursive strategy. Uh, yes. And strategy can be used for good things and bad things in politics, yes. in business, in life. Uh, and there are very clearly two types of populism uh, that are operating in, in uh, political spaces, particularly in the US and, and Europe at the moment. And they are very different. That doesn't mean they're not employing similar strategies, although there are differences in the strategies as well. Uh, so, so I suppose what, what allows you to associate, for example, Sinn Féin, Corbyn's Labour project, Sanders' attempt for the, the Democratic presidential candidacy, uh, Podemos, but also, for example, progressive Catalan nationalism in its recent attempt to secure a referendum, uh, our friends in Sortu and Bildu in the Basque Country, is that they are articulating a political project which is trying to construct a political subject that is the people. And the people being very diverse with different interests and needs in opposition to a minority uh, political and economic elite, political and economic status quo. I suppose that the big divergence between that project, and there are differences between those different groups I just yeah. mentioned, outstanding. the big difference between that and the Orban, uh, 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 Farage, Johnson, uh, Trump project is on the one hand that other project is authoritarian, so it's not interested in deepening uh, 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 the operation of, of democracy and democratic institutions in the way left populism is. Um, it, it is not only focused against centers of social and economic power at the top of the hierarchies of our society, but also punching down against those at the very bottom of our society 
migrants, lesbian and gay communities, uh, and other marginalised uh, uh, groups. And ultimately, I suppose there's there's a, a, a fundamental difference, which is if if what is inspiring, motivating, facilitating these two types of populism is the failure of liberalism, and that's something we'll get onto. Yeah. What left populism is trying to do is deepen uh, the progressive traditions of liberalism into creating much more democratic and more radically democratic uh, uh, political space. What uh, right-wing populism is trying to do, of course, is close off the space of liberalism at all and throw the baby out with the bathwater and we lose those progressive political traditions of, of liberalism from uh, the 18th and 19th century uh, in the creation of a much more authoritarian and right-wing regime. So those two types of projects are fundamentally different. Yeah. That doesn't mean they don't employ, for example, certain types of strategic maneuvers which have a comparison, but that's the same. Like democracy is a contested concept, socialism yeah. is a contested concept, liberalism and neoliberalism are contested. Yeah. Um, and, and not only are they contested, they evolve and change. Uh, so I think the really important point is not to have a kind of a, a 19th century Victorian attitude where you're trying to you know, pin all the different butterflies from a different species onto one table, but understand these are ways of doing things and they evolve and change, but they're still terms and categories and comparisons that have some utility in understanding what's going on. Many people would argue, for example, that the failure of Corbyn or Sanders, uh, and to a certain extent, maybe Podemos and other, let's say, left populist movements uh, in the kind of advanced capitalist democracy of the world, failed because they didn't have a nationalist story to tell or failed because they didn't have some sort of discursive strategy, if you want to be consistent with the terminology here in terms of populism as a strategy, that has something to say about the flag, right? Is, 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 does that make Sinn Féin unique because you are a nationalist party? You have, you know, you wave the flag with, with pride, whereas other left populist party uh, would probably struggle to do that. They would struggle to mobilize traditional working class constituencies because maybe they don't have a nationalist story to tell. Yeah, so I mean, if you, if you broaden the discussion out uh, and you look at where populism historically has been strongest, which is in Latin America, both in terms of centre-right populism of the Peron regime in, in Argentina, but also the more progressive populisms of the early Chavez regime or the Morales regime, etc., or even what's happening in Mexico at the minute, is that what those successful left populist projects have done, if they, they have combined a kind of a radical social democratic project in terms of economic policy, with a populist political strategy in terms of articulating a sense of the people, but they've wrapped it up in a very progressive or attempted to wrap it up in a progressive sense of, of, of national identity and culture. Um, I think that's also been the case, for example, in Greece, both with, with PASOK previously, who were kind of a, an interesting, a slightly more left-wing version of Fianna Fáil, you could say, but very clearly both a progressive nationalist and quasi-social democratic party, and Syriza then took up that mantle uh, afterwards. And again, I suppose one of the things that frustrates me about some of the literature about the current wave of populism and that populism is, it only looks at Spain, uh, at Britain uh, and uh, the uh, US, which of course are the least successful of those projects today, will be very interesting. Uh, and they're ignoring, for example, the Basque country, Catalonia, Ireland. They're, they're also kind of ignoring Greece since the, the, the collapse of, of the kind of Syriza project. You know, yeah. they, they succumbed to the dictates of, of, of the European Council and Commission a number of years ago. So I think if, if we want to fully understand both the potential in the utilization of, of a progressive populist political strategy as part of a broader, what I would call left Republican project in Ireland, people have different 
terms elsewhere. I think we need to look in the round at those other instances of, of progressive populism. But we also need to look at it more critically. Like one of the things that frustrates me about some of the commentary, uh, although your, your student uh, uh, recently published a book on, on left populism in, in the US and, and Spain, and his is quite interesting because unlike some of the early texts around Syriza, for example, where they wanted to celebrate what they thought was really interesting, once things started to go bad in Greece, all of the progressive intellectuals and left commentaries just walked away and weren't interested anymore. Whereas the really important lessons to be learned both in Spain and Greece and the US and indeed in Britain are the moment of failure, not the moment of ascension. And I do think those of us who are interested in this because we have skin in the game, because we're actively involved in trying to build those yeah. projects, we need to take a much harsher and more critical look at what's going on in all of those instances uh, to see what worked, what didn't work. And it's not just about uh, the failure of some of these left populist political projects to acquire state power or to acquire majority state power. It's also about what happens when they are in institutional uh, or positions of institutional power, what goes wrong. And for me, Greece is the really important one there. Uh, and, and the old kind of traditional leftist tropes of sellouts, of, of treachery, of they don't explain what happens in those very specific socioeconomic and political conjectures. And that's why we need to kind of look at those things more, more thoroughly. Uh, because I think what, what your student Horkay's book really, really does demonstrate is populism isn't a flash in the pan thing. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's here to stay for quite some time. And I think the more recent rise of Sinn Féin and the consolidation of our strength, particularly in the 26 counties in terms of opinion polls, shows that this moment isn't over yet. And I suppose what I'm interested in is not making the same mistakes that Syriza have made or Podemos has made or, or, or Sanders or Corbyn so that our project is more successful both in, in, in acquiring state power but also utilising state power in a much more progressive left Republican manner. And but can you, so if populism is a strategy and it's aimed at mobilising a diverse plural constituency and, and peoples and we can perhaps tease that out in the Irish case because it seems to me that the Irish voter has changed dramatically and a lot of the commentaries and a lot of Quite frankly, Irish political science hasn't quite caught up with that reality, um, maybe because they themselves are slightly older demographic. But um, does populism as a strategy come to an end when populist parties enter government? Because when you're entering government, you have to deal with the constraints of governance and the constraints of governance and managing a very, very complex market economy and all the political trade-offs and economic trade-offs that come with that. It makes it very difficult to satisfy everybody all the time, which is arguably what is central to a populist strategy in terms of mobilizing people. So is it successful in government or do we just don't know? So again, I suppose, well, the context is very, very different. If you go back to the Latin American example, it proved very successful insofar as it allowed a number of diverse political movements, you know, at various stages in the 20th and early 21st century to acquire state power and to stay in positions of government for quite, quite long periods of time. Yeah. And that's both the centre-right populisms and, and, and the left populisms that we've mentioned. Now, there's an open debate, of course, about how successful uh, those political parties were in terms of economic governance, in terms of, of democratic legitimacy, in terms of those things. But where there are failures, and I think you can very clearly identify failures, they're not because of the utilization of populism as a political strategy. They're to do with the failures of economic policy or, 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 or political practice or et cetera. And again, that's why I think learning from those failures is absolutely key. You know, for example, the, the, the Western European left was the greatest cheerleader of Chavez when everything was going well. But when things started going bad, people just stopped talking about Chavez apart from the political parties of the right. 
Whereas again, for somebody like me who, who wants to be part of a progressive left Republican government uh, that does things you know, profoundly differently in social economic policy from what we've seen from Irish governments over the last century, I would have learned from the mistakes of those uh, uh, periods as well. Again, Mexico is probably a more important example for many of us because <clears throat> unlike Venezuela, for example, where there was you know, 80% of the population living below the poverty line when Chavez first took power, uh, what's happening with uh, a, 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 the new left government there is it, it is obviously a different kind of society to Ireland in social, economic and political terms, but it's also a society that has a much more sizable middle class and more stable institutions yeah. of democracy. Again, lots and lots of differences as well in terms of the role of cartel drug gangs and political corruption and, and all of that kind of stuff. But, but I do think there needs to be a much more honest appraisal, for example, uh, of, of Greece. Um, I do also think there needs to be a proper assessment of Portugal because you know, yeah. we're talking about all of these things that Portugal points to a different strategy where you have a much more traditional social democratic party that <clears throat> has revived the social democratic space, built alliances with parties who were initially more associated with the kind of left populist Euro periphery movements, particularly the, the Bloco in, in Portugal. And, and while the, the available information in the English language limits the ability of some of us to fully understand what's going on there, certainly has produced a level of success in certain areas. Um, and housing policy is very interesting at a mayoral level and a central government level, uh, some, some uh, counter-cyclical policies, some reversals of some of the harshest ends of austerity. So we shouldn't just limit ourselves. You know, it's a little bit like when we were looking at the, the pink tide in Latin America and the left in Europe kind of oddly divided into those people who were in favour uh, of Lula and, and the Workers' Party in Brazil or Chavez and and the populist movement in, in, in Venezuela, where I think there's merits and, and lessons to be learned from both, uh, and you need to be learning those, and I think it's the same at the moment. So I'd like to see a much fuller debate in Ireland among the, the progressive parties around what's happening and what has happened uh, among yeah. left parties who are in or trying to acquire state power and what they have done with it. And for me, these are all tools. Like, you know, it's like doing anything. A tool is only as good as how you use it. Yeah. And while one group of people may have used one group of tools historically and another group may have used another group, if both tools are useful to us now in the much more substantive project, which is that left Republican project, which is a really big part of, of what we're trying to achieve, then let's utilize every tool available to us so long as it doesn't compromise our core uh, uh, political policy principles in terms of what we're trying to do island-wide in terms of our reunification, uh, 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 but also in terms of socioeconomic advancement uh, for working people north and south. But, but so, so you clearly have uh, a vision, right, for how you imagine Sinn Féin and, and where you identify Sinn Féin and this uh, kind of left populist turn, if you like, in various different countries. Is that shared widely within Sinn Féin? Is that something that all of the leadership of Sinn Féin, is that something that the party shares? Or is it, is, or is are, are there different coalitions within the party? I mean, it is a party operating in two, two different political jurisdictions, for example. So is this something that's widely shared or is this your kind of intellectual vision for Sinn Féin? Well, first of all, the, the, the political project of the party, uh, and it's the political project the party agreed by party members at the Ardesh and, and implemented by uh, uh, party activists in political institutions and the party leadership is a left Republican project. So that is agreed. Um, and that is a project that is trying to combine on the one hand, advances towards Irish reunification uh, through the institutions uh, and the mechanisms provided by the Belfast Agreement, while at the same time trying to implement, you know, a radical left of centre social democratic program. Uh, and you can call it, you know, democratic socialist or social democratic, or but it's about trying to expand the role of the state 
uh, to universalize the provision of key public services beyond just a safety net, but into that idea of, uh, uh, of kind of widespread social capital uh, and through doing so uh, uh, dramatically reduce not only inequalities, uh, uh, but the unequal distribution of power and resources uh, across all sections of society. So it's not social democracy as we had yeah. in the 1890s, which is just softening the harsh edges of capitalism, but it's about a much more transformatory project. Okay. Look, you can have that nice rhetoric and, and in, in the world of political theory and in the world of, of, of essay writing and, and article writing, which you and I both do, that stuff has cleaner edges. Yeah. In the, in the world of political uh, competition, contestation, those things become much more tricky. Um, and whether at the local government level, central government level, intergovernmental level, or the European level, how you negotiate advances and 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 uh, 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 kind of defensive maneuvers is is isn't straightforward. It's not yeah. not uh, uh, without difficulty. So I think all of that's great. Um, I think if you were to ask, you know, twenty five uh, Sinn Féin representatives, are you populist or not? Their answer would depend on what they understood. So, for example, some of our people. Their understanding of populism is the pejorative terminology that I described at the start. And clearly we're not that. So some of our people would say, oh no, we're not, because you know that's Fianna Fáil at its worst, or that's Boris Johnson at his worst. Um, there would be some people who are connected to these broader academic debates or, or political theoretical debates that will say yes, but caveat it in the way I'm doing. But that doesn't matter. What matters is what's actually been done, right? So for example, you know, when Mary Lou MacDonald or, or Jerry Adams rail against the elites, which we do regularly and rightfully do, uh, that's a populist strategic maneuver. That's yeah. an attempt to draw a clear line in, in the political space between the people, plurally constituted as people with different sets of socioeconomic interests, and that minority at the top. And you know, look at what Pierre Starty and the language he's used in, in his attempt to seek progressive reform of the insurance industry or the mortgage industry. Look at what I do when I'm talking about, for example, big institutional investors and developers and co-living and built to rent. Look at what Mary Lou is doing in terms of her response to Golfgate. Yeah. There's, there's a discourse that connects all of those diverse instances of political and economic struggle, which utilizes the language of the people versus the elite. Um, yeah. And that is because we are trying to bring into being a political subject. Like, you know, again, this is where you get into the, 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 the realm of political theory, which might alienate some activists in the political process, but political subjects don't exist naturally. Right? Yes. Political subjects are brought into being by trade unions, community organizations, political parties, mass movements. And what a, a populist political strategy does is say, there's people over here hammered on the mortgages, people over there who can't get access to accommodation, people over here who live in border communities who are really negatively affected by partition, people in Belfast who want to be able to live their life through the Irish language, but have been impeded by the failure of the unionists to implement the Nakhna Gaelica, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we bring all of those people together, respecting their divergent interests and needs, but mobilizing them as a single political subject? Yeah. And that's what populism tries to do. And again, crucially, ours is that diverse pluralist uh, uh, subject because it also includes asylum seekers. It also includes uh, uh, transgender people. It also includes people who are securing further advances in lesbian, gay, uh, uh, equality, etc. And therefore, you're trying to build that maximum coalition. Is it always contingent? Is it always fluid and flexible? When you get into institutional uh, positions of institutional power, can you satisfy all of the needs all of the time? Of course not. That's yeah. the nature of politics. 
Um, but any government has that. Like, if you're not employing a populist strategy, if you're employing a technocratic kind of uh, neoliberal strategy, as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have done for decades, you still get elected by a majority of people. And those people still have divergent needs and interests, which you have to try and satisfy in government. Um, I suppose the big difference is, and this is one of the reasons why we're now in this space with the technocratic cosmopolitan yeah. rules on one side and the progressive populist left on the other side, uh, as we're trying to constitute it, is because of a failure of that technocratic liberal project domestically and at a European level to satisfy those needs. In fact, the very opposite, it's undermined many of those. And that has opened up a space on the one hand for some of the really negative reactionary authoritarian populism, but also for this other option, uh, which ourselves or Corbyn or uh, Podemos or Syriza or Sortu or uh, Catalan independence movement uh, are trying to articulate. And this hasn't been decided. If, yeah. if your question is, are you successful or not? We have to wait and see. Sure, but the 2020 election is interesting. It seems to me, and I've been doing some kind of empirical work on this, looking at the 2020 Irish election survey, uh, and then contextualizing it within the other waves, there's clearly been a structural shift in Irish politics from 2008 onwards. And there's clearly been a kind of pattern of change happening. Now, whether the question that I find interesting is on the one hand, maybe public opinion and voter behavior itself is changing because it's fairly obvious now and it's showing itself up in the data. The average Irish voter now identifies on the left, the center left, when it comes to redistributive policies and when it comes to socio-cultural issues. So on the one hand, that's there on the demand side, right? Now, arguably, what has changed is not so much the voter, but perhaps on the supply side, a party has come along and, as you say, tried to mobilize and articulate a political subject. And that party, it seems to me, looking at it objectively, is Sinn Féin. I know a lot of the Irish commentary that really struggle with that shift, but it seems to me that there is a clear left-right divide in Irish politics now, with Sinn Féin being the biggest party on the left, and Fine Gael arguably going forward being the biggest party on the right. So you have that polarization, which can be good and bad depending on how it plays out. But as you say, we don't know. Let's see. But it seems to me, and if you look at this comparatively, uh, Sinn Féin's core anchor, if you like, is traditional working class, which arguably they have taken from Fianna Fáil. In other European countries, that vote would have been traditionally to the centre-left of the Social Democrats. And it's the radical right, it's the nationalist right that are taking that vote. So therefore, Sinn Féin is, is I would not argue, and I know that some people think about Sinn, that Sinn Féin are a right-wing party, I don't consider that to be the case. But is it the case that because Sinn Féin are anchored, arguably, in a traditional working class base, but are branching out beyond that and building a diverse coalition with urban graduates who are concerned about housing, by putting the weight on economic issues in your mobilizing strategy, you're blocking off the possibility of a more cultural nationalist narrative. Or is it the case that it's only a matter of time before somebody comes along and begins to mobilize on anti-immigration, you know, anti-LGBT rights and a classic Catholic conservative nationalism? Is that threat there or does Sinn Féin block that off? But I look at it in a slightly different way, right? So if you go back to the high point of the Eurozone crisis, um, one of the really interesting distinctions was uh, 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 working class communities and lower middle class communities who were particularly uh, negatively affected by the Eurozone crisis and, and austerity in the Eurozone periphery gravitated towards the radical left or left Republicans or, or, or whatever you want to call it. And in, in the Eurozone core gravitated towards the authoritarian populist right. And I think there's a very simple reason for that. And it's to do with the fact that in Ireland, in Greece, 
in Portugal and in Spain, um, there was no difficulty for, for the left parties that emerged stronger at those moments articulating the project in conjunction with progressive nationalism. I mean, you know, the big, big turning point for, for, for Podemos, for example, was its embrace of that idea of, of patriotism and trying to wrestle patriotism away from the popular party in Spain and articulate a progressive version. If you look at Catalonia, for example, um, and if you look at uh, uh, the Basque country, that has been a process and train for 10 years before. And likewise with the rest of the Eurozone periphery. So I think the reason why you haven't seen, and, and the battle between Golden Dawn and Syriza is an interesting case in point, because there you had a country on the, the southern tip of Europe facing all of the huge pressures as a re result of the very significant levels of immigrant migration caused by uh, wars in the middle and near east. Uh, you had an organized, clearly fascist movement, but Syriza were able to do battle with those parties in core working class uh, uh, and coastal communities and win that battle decisively. And the reason why is because in Greece and Portugal and Italy and Spain and in Ireland, uh, there is a strong tradition of, of integrating a left and socioeconomic program with a variety of forms of progressive culture and nationalism. The left Republican tradition in, in Ireland is that and elsewhere. The big difficulty in, in the continent, <coughs> uh, and Italy is a case in point, and probably the worst case in point, but France and Germany and others, uh, and Britain suffers from this too, is that the terrain of, of cultural nationalism was just abandoned to the right. You know, um, and we saw this early, for example, on in, in Britain in inner city cities, for example, in London, where you had the rise of the BNP in the very early 90s, because working class laborism had just evaporated. It had been replaced by kind of neoliberal pre-Blairite and Blairite politics. And, and the only people in there talking about the kind of issues in a language that made sense to work class communities, Bermondsey or other places, uh, was, was the, the National Front of the BNP. So for me, the lesson of that is, is that left projects should never abandon uh, uh, the debate around the nation, should never abandon the debate around cultural identity. What they should do is they should contest it. And again, I think if you look at Sinn Féin, for example, the really interesting thing is we are absolutely a cultural nationalist and, and a politically nationalist party. Yeah. But you look at key moments, for example, like the citizenship referendum uh, or the appalling uh, treatment of Bulgarians and Romanians uh, when those countries first entered the member state, Sinn Féin took uh, uh, the progressive side yeah. uh, in terms of either defending the rights of Bulgarians and Romanians to free movement within the European Union, something unfortunately it didn't do, or opposing the citizenship referendum because we believe everybody who's born on the island of Ireland ha has a right to Irish citizenship. So, you know, I lived in London for a long time and the big, yeah. big problem for the British left and for the English left in particular, Scotland didn't really have this problem, was nationalism became a dirty word. Uh, it became something of the right, and notwithstanding the attempt of some left intellectuals uh, to articulate, uh, or some left cultural figures like Billy Bragg, to try and recapture that. And, and I think you're right, Corbyn did fall foul of that because Brexit you know, isn't just about the relationship between you know, the institutions of the United Kingdom, as it's called, and the European Union. It's also about cultural identity and political identity. Yeah. Uh, and the left had very few answers to those questions. And look, I'm somebody enormously sympathetic to Corbyn, but you could just see, you know, if, if he yeah. went free for the Remain side, he would lose large swathes of, of particularly North England, uh, urban working class, you know, English nationalists, um, whose nationalist discourse had been completely monopolized by UKIP and the far right. But at the same time, if he'd gone completely that side, he would have lost a lot of the more liberal, younger, metropolitan, cosmopolitan electoral bases in the south, particularly around London. And of course, 
ultimately his failing was, 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 yes, you can talk about sabotage from the right wing in his party. Yes, you can talk about negative media coverage. There was a more fundamental problem. My crucial point is this, though, is that if the left wants to succeed, in my opinion, it can't shy away from aggressive nationalism. That's something that killed the Irish Labour Party. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, most working class people traditionally voted for Fianna Fáil because under Lamas, uh, uh, from Lamas on, they had a quasi-social democratic nationalist urban political party linked to the trade unions in the way yeah. the Irish Labour Party could never do. Um, and on that basis, I don't think we're that different from most of the European countries. Some of our delineations are different, yeah. but the political dynamics, I think, are broadly similar. Uh, yeah. we're, just, we're much more similar to, say, the Catalan dynamics and the Basque dynamics and a little bit to the Greek and Portuguese than we are to the, the, you know, the, 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 the core Eurozone countries. Yeah, but it so seems to me, though, that it, at least in continental Western Europe, or maybe we can begin to move on to talk about Europe and the European Union, it's, it, maybe it says more about the academic world in these countries, but, but, but I think the intellectual leadership in these countries on the left and you know, generally really struggle with the idea that it's possible to have a progressive left nationalism. Or a civic and in my mind, my way I would conceptually distinguish these things is that you can have a civic nationalism and you can have an ethno nationalism. It's obvious that what's happening in the UK at the moment, in England in particular, it's a deeply held ethno nationalist view. And we know in the history of this country, there's always been a strong tradition of a nationalist narrative uh, in Britain, and it manifested itself in empire. I think in Ireland, because of the kind of anti-colonial, anti-empire past which has been articulated by different parties, traditionally Sinn Féin, or Fianna Fáil, arguably now most likely in Sinn Féin, that it, it does make it a lot easier to uh, combine a kind of left economic story and, about social justice and social economic rights, whilst simultaneously having no problem waving flag because you're, you're fighting a colonial battle and you're a small country and so on. And it just seems to me that, you know, in other countries, they, when they look at Ireland, they find that unusual. Even the terminology of republicanism, and you've talked about left republicanism, and I think you wrote a really interesting piece a few years ago in the Business Post. Uh, was it about Jerry Adams' 1986 book and the kind of the idea of, of left of, of what that means? And it is an interesting tradition. Um, but I think amongst the Irish political commentaries, at least, that, that that story isn't being told, but it's clearly a story that's held more widely in Irish society. Are Sinn Féin a Eurosceptic party? So there's a couple of different questions there, and 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 I, I just wanted to finish answering your yeah. last question, right? Because you 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 asked the question around the 2020 general election here in the south, um, and I think you're absolutely right. There has been a shift, and and you know you can trace that shift back, for example, to the Lisbon Treaty referendum, yeah. um, because for the first time, large numbers of people who positively identify with the European Union voted against an EU treaty um, because they didn't want to withdraw from the European Union; they went against the European Union. They didn't like the content of that treaty in terms of what it meant for, for Ireland and the European Union in social, economic, and political institutional terms. Yeah. Uh, obviously, then, uh, the, the slow demise of the combined Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, PD vote from 1989 uh, 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 to 2008 is, is well charted. But I think what happened after 2008 was those people who were no longer satisfied with, with supporting centre-right, technocratic, uh, kind of, you know, what I call kind of Europeanist parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, um, were fragmented. So Sinn Féin got a bit of it, <coughs> the, the, the smaller left groupings got a bit of it, the SOC Dems got a bit of it, etc. What changed in the course of the general election in 2020 was a much larger group of that uh, uh, demographic who wanted change coalesced around a single poll, and that was Sinn Féin. 
but they also increased their vote for the Greens and, and for the Social Democrat. So the real significant shift isn't the demise of their, or the, the reduction of the Fianna Fáil share of the vote. That has been happening. Mm. It's the coalescing. And it was one of the big challenges Sinn Féin had previously. We were kind of saying, look, if we're going to form a progressive government here, a left-led or an exclusively progressive left government, somebody has to be the bigger partner of that. Somebody has to coalesce. And I think the one thing we did, which was very significant, and this does positively answer your question around socioeconomic issues, we spent an awful lot more time in the last 12 months talking about the positive solutions to the socioeconomic challenges that people have, whether it's housing need, childcare need, healthcare need, et cetera, but always putting that in a broader progressive nationalist All-Ireland uh, uh, context and articulating that through a kind of a, a populist discursive strategy. Yeah. And I think those are the things that were the recipe for our success. To move on to your subsequent question. So actually, if you look at the history of, of the European left, you know, when the French Communist Party and the Italian Communist Party were at their height, they were exclusively nationalist parties. In fact, it was their combination of nationalism and the progressive partisan nationalism coming out of the Second World War uh, and their, their mobilization and articulation of cultural and national traditions with the institutions of the trade union movement, the party and the socioeconomic demands that made them such powerful forces. If you look at social democratic parties right up until the 1980s, they were broadly nationalist, right? Yeah. So what happens is, is that social democracy, as it's faced with the challenge of the collapse of the, the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the discrediting of, of, of democratic socialism and, and, and communist political parties, and then the increasing hegemony of the neoliberal project across Europe, whether it's the order liberalism in Germany or the Thatcherite, uh, more than a bash liberalism in Britain, is the social democratic parties enter a period of crisis. And what a lot of them start to do is embrace a kind of a technocratic liberal cosmopolitanism that happened in the Irish Labour Party, the British Labour Party. It, it happened with Felipe González's uh, uh, um, uh, Spanish Socialist Workers Party, etc. So it's from that moment <clears throat> that nationalism for the liberal European left becomes a problem. And of course, the commentaries in Ireland are part of that what I call social liberal consensus. And I use that term very, very generally because it combines a whole range of people. Yeah. And there are two reasons why those parties declined electorally. One was economic policy and abandoning the, the, the traditional policies which supported their core economic base. But the second was their embrace of, of technocratic Europeanism uh, and that growing distance then that, that emerged between working class and lower middle class communities uh, and the institutions of governance. Um, and that's one of the features of, of Europeanization. Like Peter Maher, for example, you know, uh, 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 um, his short book around uh, uh, the kind of the hollowing out of the European political space, I think tracks all of that quite well. Yeah. Um, so I suppose that the space we're now in is, is, so where does that leave us? And when I wrote the book Sinn Féin and the Politics of Left Republicanism, in the conclusion, I made this distinction between cultural nationalism and civic nationalism, right? I don't subscribe to that anymore. I think I was wrong. Um, okay. I'm a cultural nationalist, right? But I'm not an ethno-nationalist, and, and how I think of Irish culture is in a very plural, diverse way. And just as I, I think you know, national identity in a political sense shouldn't be left to the right, nor should cultural identity. Um, so, for example, you know, well, what do we mean by you know, cultural identity? Because cultures are porous and they're fluid and they change, absolutely. But they're historical material realities. So Irish culture is the culture of everybody is who is from here, who comes here, and who has an origin here. And that thing changes and, and mutates. You know, like I used to be a big fan of, of Planksteen, 
right? And people would think of Planxty as a traditional Irish trad band. Well, one of the great innovations of Planxty was the use of a very un-Irish instrument, the bazooki, into Irish trad music. Now, every trad band in the country has a bazooki, but it's, you know, from abroad. You know, if you think of, of hip-hop bands from the 80s and 90s, like Marksmen, for example, or the Africa Sound System, like that's Irish music, but open yeah. up to international influences. And likewise, for example, you know, I've been listening a lot to Lancome. And again, you know, anybody who likes the Silverman Zion post-punk kind of droney music can hear those international influences in something that's incredibly Irish. Yeah. So actually, my view now is, is that like, I, I, I'm a Republican in the sense that that's how I would like the institutions of the state to operate. Right? So Republican in terms of a kind of a, a participative notion of democracy and how, how people get to make decisions. Uh, I'm a socialist in terms of how I'd like the economy to run on a particular version of that. Uh, I'm a Democrat in the sense that I believe in democracy, but I think we need to go much further than just representative, a much more participative democracy. But I'm a cultural nationalist in the sense that what does it mean to be Irish? Well, we are everybody who is here, who is from here, who has come here, who has origins here. And whatever we do culturally, whatever that hybrid mix is, is who we are. And I think, you know, I always point to a moment in the Catalan independence referendum. I was a, an observer there as part of an international delegation of people, both supportive of Catalan self-determination and critical of it. We observed it. There was a wonderful moment in the final rally, right? So you had this huge rally run by this civil society uh, 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 campaign. And at the final moment of the rally, this is the night before the vote, different sectors of Catalan society came out and brought out to this huge stage enormous letters, right? Independence equals democracy. Mm. And there were school teachers, and there were firefighters, and there were students, and there were, you know, whoever. And there were minority communities, communities who had migrated, communities who had been born of Asian, of African origin, etc. And what the Catalan independence movement was trying to do at that moment is symbolize visually a cultural nationalism that is open, that is plural, that is cosmopolitan. So I suppose that the distinction I now make isn't between a civic nationalism, which is good, and a cultural ethnonationalism, which is bad, but a cosmopolitan nationalism, which is a essential ingredient, I think, to any democratic project, mm-hmm. on the one hand. And on the other, a kind of a liberal cosmopolitanism, which I think is part of our political problem. And on the other side, that very reactionary ethno-nationalist, xenophobic, racist project. And I think the antidote to both is, is that cosmopolitan nationalism which of course for me, you know, is, is very similar to what Syriza were trying to do in terms of their identity politics, Corbyn was trying to do, Sanders to a less successful extent, you know, that was one of his problems. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. What is the dominant trend among the Irish commentariat? And I say this not in a pejorative way, it's a kind of a social liberalism, right? Yeah. You know, it's in favor of European integration. It's in favor of marriage equality and gay rights. Uh, you know, it's in favor of greater female participation in the labor force. It doesn't want too much interference, though, in market distribution and market mechanics. And when things get too bad, like the housing and health crisis, it wants something done. But it's not going to go so far to the left. So it sits in the centre, and its economic policy is kind of tilting to the right, and its social policy is kind of tilting to the left. So that social liberalism is pervasive in our commentariat. Mm. And I think they have a real difficulty understanding our project because they set themselves up from the 1980s and 90s in opposition to traditional Catholic conservative nationalism. And they don't have the, 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 the vocabulary to understand that, yeah, that's a problem and that's there, but you have this other thing. And my final question is, my final answer to your question is this. 
you know, why do we not have a, a large right-wing Eurosceptic, xenophobic anti-immigrant party? You're looking at the reason. Yeah. Right? And I think most honest commentators will say, one of the reasons is because we don't just represent progressive nationalist project, which is left of center and progressive on issues of migration and social policy. We are active, mobilized on the ground in those communities, which have been abandoned by Fianna Fáil and the Labour Party in the main. But we have filled that vacuum and that void very, very quickly with progressive alternatives. So I live in a constituency with the second largest direct provision centre in the country. Yeah. At the height of the Eurozone crisis, when large numbers of my core electorates were without jobs and without homes and, and unable to get healthcare, I would have had lots of conversations with people who were saying, look, Owen, I'm not against Africans. I understand these people are fleeing war, but should we not look after our own first? Right? I, my son can't get a job. My daughter can't get a house. And our activism on the ground, and we're not the only people, by the way, some of the other smaller left parties have done exactly the same thing and should be commended for it, is what we did with those conversations is convince people, actually, don't be worrying about the asylum seekers. In fact, they have as much to complain about as you do. Let's all collectively focus our anger on where it should be, the political and economic elites who are leaving your sons and daughters without houses and jobs and forcing asylum applicants to live in the most appalling conditions in the direct provision centre. And by giving progressive leadership on the ground in communities and councils, and in the Oireachtas, we fill that space. And that's why it's the tinfoil hat brigade led by General Doherty who are trying to get into that and nobody will take those people seriously. Yeah, no, I think it's, and I think this is really an interesting observation and I would share your analysis on this and I think it's backed up by the data, but it seems to me that a mistake that's often made in political science, generally, international political science, is that there's public opinion, people hold views, they have preferences, and those preferences are mobilized by political parties and there's a kind of matching of the two. If there's anti-immigrant preferences out there, well, that's going to get reflected in a political party. It seems to me that political parties themselves have a very active role to play in mobilizing, strategizing, and showing leadership, quite frankly. And there's no leadership on those questions. If people aren't willing to get down on the ground and have difficult conversations, you know, and, and debate those issues, then you can be sure that they will get articulated and mobilized. And I think that is an important observation which is often lost in Western European politics, that ultimately people are racist, the working class are racist, and therefore the right can have them, you know? I think that's a really dangerous way to think because I don't think that is indeed the case at all. I think actually it depends on the issues, it depends on how you mobilize, it depends on the weighting that you attach to certain things and so on. And in many ways, housing, this is reflected in housing. I mean, you've also wrote an article in the past, I think, on housing and classism, and I think that's very true. It seems to me, uh, that the biggest obstacle to solving the housing crisis in Ireland and the, to generate sufficient popular support for public housing is classism. People don't want what they perceive to be council housing next door to them. And nobody is, is ever really kind of willing to publicly say that. They would say it privately, etc. But it seems to me that, that, that this kind of class divide and this is important. And conversely, this would require leadership, and I think in many ways you will be willing to make the case. I think you would be, would be willing to argue that you should have council housing next door to you. So I think the same issue has to happen on housing. And I don't see too many politicians out there arguing uh, for social housing in the middle of private middle-class uh, communities. So let me, let me, I suppose, just just yeah, track back and just, just make one point about the, the initial part of what you said. So for... For example, politics isn't just in supply and demand, because politics yeah. is a at all times. And, and what political parties do is as much affected by what they think 
their target electorates or their core electorates are saying to them or what is actually being said. There's no going dialogue. And if you're an activist-based party like we are, and like, you know, outside of COVID, I canvass twice a week, every week in my constituency, we're very engaged and, and we spend a lot of time listening to people. So we've a, we've a, we've a style of politics, which the bigger parties or the older bigger parties like Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael used to have and don't anymore, is that that dialogue is, is a two-way street. And it's not just two-way because within parties, there can be different priorities, within the electorates, there can be different demographics and different interests. And you're negotiating all of that. And you're also talking to NGOs and you're talking to business groups and you're talking to trade unions. And so it's, it's much more kind of fluid, if you like, um, than just a straightforward voters want this, parties offer that, and who, meet, who matches and who doesn't. And it's also about what doesn't get done. So again, if you, if you take, take the example of what I was saying in terms of my own constituency and, and the concerns that people had about the distribution of resources at the height of the, 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 the Eurozone crisis, and what I said about Bermondsey, for example, in London, and only because I lived there in the early 90s. It's what the Labour Party in Britain didn't do in Bermondsey that caused the problem. They didn't go in and, and engage with and listen to and service the needs of those working class deindustrializing communities that left the vacuum open for the far right. Um, and that's just important to remember. And, and again, you know, Peter Mayer's book, I think, is important because if we're concerned about that hollowing out of, of the space of democratic politics, then there's only one way you fill it, folks, right? And that's by knocking doors, it's by meeting people in small hallways, in hall rooms, it's by walking the streets. Uh, like, we all do focus groups, we all do opinion polls, you know, we all listen to all of the research, and that stuff is really important. What went wrong, I think, with the liberalisation of, of politics and the technocratization of politics in the 80s and 90s, is they replaced the old ways of doing the stuff with the new ways. And I think that's their problem. We have to combine the both. There's nothing better. I tell you this, come and canvas with me any Friday or Saturday. There is nothing better than knocking 100 doors to know what's going on, what people think about you, the government, the country. It is the most direct way to engage with people. Um, and it's really important. So just, just to say all of that. Well, can, I, can I say something, Daryl? Is that the reason why Sinn Féin did not do particularly well at the local elections? Did they, did they, did they forget that? Because it seems to me that I could be totally wrong on this, but my, my intuition, my perception on this is that Sinn Féin got punished at the local elections because they were perceived to not be solving local problems. I think, I think that we, we, we had a couple of problems. We, we, we had a bad presidential election with very, very bad branding and messaging, which, which I think caused us a difficulty. So we went into the locals and Europeans uh, down on that. I also think we were having some transition problems. So when you change party leader, it, it takes a while for you to settle into what's the new kind of emphasis or focus, et cetera. And I think at the time we were just a bit too cranky and a bit too negative and you know, we, we hadn't moved into that, yes, everybody knows there's a housing crisis, but what are you going to do to fix it mode? Uh, and I do think in a number of key constituencies, because our, our, our local elections were divided into three categories. Constituencies where we held our votes, Waterford, uh, Donegal, uh, uh, Cavan Monaghan, for example, all big strongholds, no, no problem there. Constituencies where we fell in single digits, um, and they would have been constituencies where we were organizationally weak on the ground, maybe, maybe rural constituencies. The big surprise was the urban constituencies in Dublin Cork, where we lost half, half our vote. Yeah. So in my constituency, for example, we went from 24% to 11. We were decimated, right? And yet we canvassed twice a week. We had a, 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 a TD who did very well, and the party did very well in 2016, with good local councillors. One of our councillors actually topped the poll um, uh, uh, in the election. So, so first of all, understanding those results requires a little bit more depth of analysis. But for example, in Dublin, what, what did us damage 
wasn't that we weren't solving local problems, because generally councillors don't get to solve an awful lot of problems because the limitations of local government. But we were over-reliant on a party brand. And for example, in Midwest, three local electoral areas, we thought we were going to take five seats. We thought the independents would take three, one in each. The independents cleaned up because they were clearly seen as prioritising shouting for the local above all else, yeah. where we were trying to manage both the local and bigger needs. Um, and I think that did us damage, certainly in those areas. Um, to, to, to move on, though, to your, to your uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, central question, however, I, I don't think the problem is classism. Uh, no. and, and like that classism is there, right? So, and I've talked about it, and the prejudice towards public housing and local authority housing is a fact. But there's a misconception out there that, for example, objections to planning permissions for social housing are one of the reasons why we don't have enough social housing. Hardly any social housing projects get blocked to planning. Hardly any. Right? I can think of one in South Dublin in, in the 10 years I've lived in the constituency. Uh, and I can think of one in Dublin City that was delayed. Right? So while politicians will, at a performative level, whinge and complain, they won't block. Right? It's the same plan with, with, with this argument that developers tell us that planning is a problem with overall residential construction. Planning is not our problem in our housing system whatsoever. There are issues around planning which we need to fix, but that's not the issue. Right? So I think we have a much, much more fundamental problem than, than classism or prejudice, or even though those things are there. Yeah. Our key problem is a failure of the state since the end of the 1980s to understand that the housing market, uh, in fact, is not a market, but is a system. Yeah. And it is a system in which the private market can only meet the needs of a section and other actors, non-market actors, have to meet the needs of the rest. And they can be local authorities, they can be state agencies, they can be not-for-profit bodies, they can be community housing trusts or whatever. Right? And as a result of that, we have had a problem from the 1990s to the present that was kind of papered over by the cheap access to easy credit during the Celtic Tiger. Yeah. And but ultimately came back to haunt us, whereby by the state completely withdrawing from anything but the provision of housing for the most needy in our society, very, very low levels of social housing provision, then this other large gap, right, working class, lower middle class, young professionals, etc., were left at the mercy of the market with a series of different types of crises, rental sector crises, uh, mortgage distress crises, unaffordability crises, etc., and at the same time, the model that the private sector utilised for the delivery of homes became increasingly dysfunctional. Um, so that not only are housing, is housing unaffordable, the private sector just cannot today, on the basis of the development model it currently pursues, deliver homes for people to rent or buy, working people like you, for example, and anything close to affordability. Yeah. But that's our central problem, and that's been a structural feature of our housing system since the end of the 90s, early 1991. And therefore, you know, we can deal with planning issues and we can deal with prejudice and Councillors would like to whinge and moan about, you know, deflating private house prices by, by having public housing beside them. That, that's straightforward enough. Until we have a government that says, we need a very, very large non-market intervention. I have my preferences, I've outlined my book. Other left of centre political parties have other preferences, how you do it. And for example, today, we need 50% of all new uh, uh, home completions to be non-market completions, whether it's level of authorities, or approved housing bodies, or, or community housing trust, etc. Uh, and to deliver those units either for very low income families subsidized, so that's what we call the differential social rental system, for uh, affordable cost rental, where you're not getting any subsidy, you're just renting at the economic cost of delivering the unit, or affordable leasehold purchase, where you can buy the property at an affordable price 
but that it's tied into permanent affordability of that unit if you ever sell it into other people into the future. And only when we get a government that's willing to mobilize investments to deliver units on scale to meet those needs, are we going to get the kind of stable housing system that we need. Like at least 30% of our housing stock should be non-market. Mm-hmm. It's only 9%. Um, uh, and, and you know, at least twice the level of capital investment by the state needs to be invested from this budget onwards to meet those needs. And crucially, because there, there, there is a debate about whether large monotenure public housing states are good or bad. The, the empirical evidence actually says that in the most instances, so long as they're properly run, they're very good. And this idea that large volumes of public housing in one place with large groups of people with single tenure is a bad thing. It's not borne out by the evidence over 25 years of those policies. But what we do need is income mix. Uh, communities need to be economically viable. They need to be able to sustain shops and businesses and schools and whatever. So large volumes of public housing integrating social rental, affordable rental, affordable leasehold purchase, you know, in, in mid-rise, mixed-use, mixed-tenure uh, developments. That's the way to go. But that would create, require such a shift of, of government policy and government investment. Um, yeah. It's hard to see. The only good news is now is the time to do it. Yeah. Uh, the borrowing environment, uh, the cost of borrowing, the European environment, the domestic uh, uh, public mood, Everything is aligning, right? So yeah. the government that doesn't do it now is the government that has every opportunity to do it. And if they choose not to do it, it's because they choose not to do it. Uh, and I think they will be severely punished uh, by the electorate in the next election if they don't do so. Yeah, it seems to me that housing shaped the 2020 election in terms of national issues. And I, and I think it's probably going to shape the, the success or failure of this incoming government, particularly in the context whereby they can effectively borrow for large sale capital investments, of which I would consider public infrastructure and public housing to be a crucial component. I'm just conscious of the, the time on. I don't want to keep you much longer. We might just finish up um, very briefly having a quick conversation with Europe and European integration. Um, this is a podcast that's part of the kind of new European political economy. Um, so again, I mentioned earlier on in the podcast whether Sinn Féin were a Eurosceptic party, and I, my inference from what you said is whether well, a Eurocritical party, right? They, they, they are critical of European integration because it's perceived as a relatively, has an institutional bias, if you like, towards a neoliberal project and so on. But how do you see the future of European integration? And, and, and how, do you fee, how do you see not just Sinn Féin, but left populism generally and its approach to the future of Europe? Because it seems to me that there is going to be more integration and that's fairly obvious in terms of how Europe has responded to COVID crisis and the debate on what that will look like. It will be shaped by national elections ultimately. Sure. So look, from, 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 from 72 up till the kind of the, the early 90s, you could easily describe Sinn Féin as a Eurosceptic party, just yeah. like the British Party was and, and etc. And, and since the, the mid-90s, and I know this because I've been centrally involved in it in various roles, the party has, has shifted that position to what we call Eurocritical, which is we want to be uh, members of the European Union, but a very different type of, of European Union than, than the one that has come into being. Um, and, and you're right, the, the institutional architecture, both from the Treaty of Rome, but particularly from the Maastricht Treaty onwards, um, uh, has a, a clear, not only institutional, but, but legal bias enshrined in EU constitutional law, treaty law, uh, uh, towards a variety of forms of economic and social liberalism. And that's one of the reasons why we're in the mess that we're in, <laughs> uh, both in terms of the Eurozone crisis and, and the, the decade of austerity afterwards. I, I think what the Eurocritical left has been good at is is challenging those negatives you know so i I think the lisbon treaty was a real turning point because before the lisbon treaty referendum 
every referendum neatly divided between you know, the, the, the section of the electorate that was just against the European Union no matter what, and those people who probably thought the European Union was a good thing, from people who just generally thought it was a good thing to those who were evangelical about it. Where Lisbon shattered that, and Lisbon was the first time we had a debate about what kind of European Union, and is the European Union on offer the right one? And interestingly, large volumes of people, particularly my age group, I was born in 72, who want to be in the European Union said no to Lisbon because they didn't like its, its foreign policy defence content, its international trade content, uh, and its uh, uh, lack of democratic accountability content. And the cosmopolitan liberals really struggle with this because they like those binaries. They like, you know, uh, European and, and anti-European. And we don't fit that, which is why they struggle so much with it. I think what the Eurocritical left has been much poorer at is outlining, so what's our alternative vision? We've all been so busy trying to articulate our vision at a member state level. But, you know, we say, for example, well, we, we, we'd like to revisit aspects of the Maastricht Treaty. We'd like to revisit aspects of the Stability and Growth Pact and uh, the fiscal rules. We'd like to look at the return of certain powers back to member states. But there's no coherent project to write on what all of those things would be, partly because we are fighting austerity and now we're obviously trying to do other things. <clears throat> so I think we have an opportunity and a challenge in the coming period, which is to start to articulate those things in a much clearer way. Part of the problem, however, is one of the big democratic deficits at the heart of the European Union is with each round of treaty change, you lock in a set of not just procedural rules, uh, but policy preferences into EU treaty law, which requires unanimity to change. And therefore, you know, the, the, if you think it's difficult to, to win 50% plus one in the general election and in, in, in institute some uh, socioeconomic policy change at a member state level, treaty change by design, and that's one of the great failures of, of the European Union, why we're I'm such a critic of it, makes progressive democratic debate, dialogue and change all the more difficult because it requires unanimity. Uh, so I, I think that's a, a challenge for, for the Eurocritical left, which I don't think we have risen to yet. Uh, and I think it's something we're going to have to do in the coming period. And that's probably one of the reasons why some of the changes that you've seen at the member state level haven't really percolated into the, into the European Parliament level. So while obviously if you have a populist authoritarian, authoritarian right or progressive populist left government that's reflected in the council, but you haven't seen the dramatic rise in, for example, the authoritarian right in the European Parliament that some people were saying uh, 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 was likely to happen. And you still have an overwhelming majority of you know, the social liberals, whether they're in the uh, S&D group or, or, or the EPP group, but they're broadly the same political platform. Uh, uh, so I think that's an area where there's more work required. Uh, but I'm pretty busy trying to solve the housing crisis with my colleagues, not just in Sinn Féin, but in the progressive present. So uh, I'll be focusing on that for the uh, medium term. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Holm. Thank you very much for your time. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot from this podcast and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.